While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. start making pizza like i'm making pizza two or three nights a week and just like getting better at it and experimenting but beer brewing takes That's a like, lot of pizza i know Are you okay i love pizza are you okay <laughs> i'm fine i'm better than i've ever been but beer brewing takes like it takes like four or five hours the first day and then like five months of doing nothing or not five months five weeks of doing nothing yeah so yeah, like unless you have a bunch of batches in rotation, you don't do it for a while and then you kind of like forget your initial enthusiasm. I feel like I would feel like they might not be as special if I had a bunch of beers going at the same time. You know? I guess it depends on how much you're experimenting and how much you like experimenting. Because part guess. of the fun of learning how to cook a new thing for me is to like do it a bunch of times and try a bunch of different things until I feel like I have it. Until I feel like I have it right or until I have a few different iterations right. See, we're a little bit different then. I would keep doing the thing the same way until I feel like I could do it without thinking about it. You know hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's... Eventually, I would settle into that because there are only so many variations on things i think there are only so many notes in the scale i hear you yeah i hear you like it's only so many colors in the in the rainbow only so many pieces of a suit to wear (laughs) what are all the pieces of a suit the pants the jacket (laughs) and the vest if you have a three-piece suit what about the cummerbund is that part of what about cufflinks? What about your sh- your shirt and your undershirt? Well, the and shirt... your belt and your shoes. These are accessories, Andrew. Each shoe counts as a separate piece. I mean, there's still there's still like a finite number of pieces, but if you showed up wearing only the things you just listed, I don't think they would let you into whatever you're going to. I would like to try that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And each week we read a book and talk about a book and talk about other dumb stuff along the way. Yeah, that's true. And speaking of dumb stuff, Craig, we got we got a listener message. Oh snap! Not that long ago, right? Do you have that? Do you happen to have that pulled up, or should I? Oh, I don't have that pulled up this, at all. Should I extend the sentence for as long as I can, just adding adjectives upon adjectives until you can pull it up? And then read it to me, and then after you read it to me, we can discuss it. Which of those things should we do? So, Eric asked us. Uh, Thanks, how- Eric. <laughs> that sounded <laughs> way more sarcastic. Oh my god! This is, Thanks, this is Eric. Why, this is why we Jeez. don't get listener mail <laughs> from our we'd... dumb, stupid listeners. Oh my god. 
Eric says, this is going to be a stupid question, like on par with the question to an actor of, how did you memorize all those lines? But I'm going to ask it nonetheless and then clarify it with follow-ups so I seem like less of an idiot. All right, <laughs> you and him are on the same page. Yeah, you're really... <laughs> how do you have time You're setting to, yourself up for success here. How do you have, have time to read all the books for your podcast? He asks. Two weeks per novel, right? Because you alternate who has read the book each week, so two weeks per novel. Do you read other books on your own, like in temporary stuff, or are you trapped reading only books you should have read already? Uh, most of which I haven't read, by the way, he says. Do you just read very quickly, or do you spend lots of time reading, or both? Uh, I read slowly, I read quite a bit, but I don't read very fast. So that's my question. Also, he would like to know how actors memorize all those lines. How do they memorize all those lines? There are... I assume they come up with a long mnemonic device. <laughs> that... Yeah, that's the best way to do it, is mnemonics. <laughs> There, there's a really good mnemonic for my favorite Shakespeare speech that just goes, shut up, Andrew. That's what the mnemonic. Man, that's rough. It's, it. I didn't know that Shakespeare knew that I was going to be mad at you. <laughs> it's pretty useful. So how do you, how would you answer this question? I would say that I feel lucky that we've been able to vary what we define as books we should have read already. <laughs> Because uh, that makes it easy to dive right back in every time, you know. Yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, I think we ran out of books that we'd been meaning to read, like, like four or five months in. Like, that's the, the, not entirely true. I but I feel like we burned through the easy ones, like the ones that we had in a stack, like really fast. And since then, we've just we've been exploring a little bit more and and doing a little more discovery and trying to dig up stuff that. Stuff that we didn't even know we didn't we had we hadn't read yet. You know? Yeah, that's fair. I, I think uh definitely maybe twenty episodes in between ten and twenty episodes you start seeing us hit the like Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde, like what are the classic books that neither of us have <laughs> really read before? <laughs> um and now it's kind of mixing I think we have a bit of a, a better sense of a better sense of what we haven't read, like what types of books we haven't read. Uh, you and I both kind of made a concerted effort a little while ago to read more female authors, uh, books about female characters, because I think there was a real there was a period of time there where we were doing a real bad job of that. <laughs> yeah, we definitely were going through the dead white man canon, <laughs> and not really yeah. paying much attention to anything else. Uh, so trying to trying to balance that out, but it's it, we missed the odd week. We're doing. We're it's a lot been, better about it's that been a now. While since we've missed one, we we are yeah. often late. <laughs> we yes. Are. Um. I I would say, the way I get through everything is is one, I pick a book where the length is kind of tailored to how much time I think I'm going to have to read it. Yeah, that's true. Like I, I, I will usually steer away from from longer ones most of the time unless I know I'm going to have some time or if we have a couple in the queue and I know I'm going to have some extra time. I also usually find myself reading like half of a book in like the week and a half or week leading up to a show. And then the other half of it, like the day before. <laughs> yeah. There's that crunch time that often happens, which I think, I don't think is bad. I, you, you don't want to finish a book right before you talk about it because you've had no time to think about it or digest it or anything. But yeah, um, I, I would definitely say that we have kind of, my reading habits have changed a little bit since we started the show. Um, just in terms, as a of, result of the show, or 
as a result of reading for the purposes of producing the show. Okay. You know, um, I read a little less just kind of random long form articles than I used to. Uh, but I don't feel like I'm missing out on books that I would otherwise read because part of the whole point was to come up with an excuse to read more. Yeah, right. Like I, like I know that I would never have read these books without the show, but in response to the part where he asked if we feel a little trapped, like, you know, sometimes, like especially if we talk about something that um that you read that I think is cool or vice versa and I would like to read it. I don't really have time to stop and read a book that I'm not gonna talk about. Yeah. Which Well and we'll talk about this next week, I think. I'm in I'm towards the end of the passage right now, which is a seven hundred page monster. We I actually took a break from reading it to read last week's episode. <laughs> Uh, which is one of the reasons why it was a play, because that takes a little less time. But I might want to read the next book in that series, and I don't know if I want to, you know, burn an episode of the show on that. I don't know if that'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to me as a person, but I don't know that I want to do that on air. Yeah. Um, so kind of figuring that out and figuring out what that is like will be mm-hmm. fun, I guess. <laughs> okay, I think... Thanks, Eric. Did that answer Eric's question? I think it did. Also, everyone learns lines differently. Usually it helps if you tie action to the lines. Oh, like a mnemonic, like remembering, like the action of remembering a mnemonic. Yeah, it's a really playable action. I'm really glad that you chose that. <laughs> this is why I am a renowned actor, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because Why I don't have... you act like you read a book this week? What did you read? <laughs> I read Tell the Wolves I'm Home by Carol Rifka Brunt. And, Who is that um, and what is it about? <laughs> this is actually, it's one of the newer books that I think we've read for the show. It, it's actually her first novel. It was published in 2012. She's working on a second, but she's not She's not published anything else yet. So, and There's a we're, great we're, quote on we're her. Catching, catching her pretty early. There's a great quote career, on her website where she talks about like some of the accolades for this book in her bio. And she's like, her book has won this and this and this. She's currently trying very hard to forget all of that, pretend there is no pressure to live up to anything, and concentrate on writing her second novel. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is is pretty good. It's pretty nice. charming. Yeah. But um, as, as is often the case with more modern authors, you know, there is not a 10,000-word Wikipedia article full of links to other scholarly research on, on her and the things that she's done in her life. Mm-hmm. So um, based on her own website, which is very nice, I've read some author websites that are not very nice. <laughs> and this one looks this one looks pretty good. So congratulations. Um, she was born in Queens in 1970, and she's kind of been all over the place. Um, she was in Scotland for a while. She went to university there. Um, she's been here and there in New England. She was in Canada for a while, and now she's living in England. So she's she's an American author, but living abroad, she's been there for um, over seven years. She has a cat named Super Cat, which I think is a pretty good name for a cat. Is that perhaps maybe the first time we've talked about an author's cat on air? I think probably. Oh my god, this is gonna become a cat cast and like. Given four what episodes. I know about writers, I think most most of our authors probably have had cats that we just haven't mentioned. So. Is there anything else about her that we need to know for the book 
specifically because there's always that kind of not stigma is not the right word but they're depending on the genre of book people sometimes wonder what is autobiographical about a first right yeah depending on how much you know about the author and how much there is to know about the author you can you can pick out the parts that are autobiographical a little more readily like i think to kill a mockingbird is a really clear example of how it's fiction, but, you know, knowing what we do about the author, we can go through and say, you know, this probably is is drawn from this and this yeah. person probably corresponds to this person, whatever. Um, the only thing that really hops out at me based on her website is um, the main character in this book. Um, her name is June Elbus. Uh, she spends a lot of time in the woods and um, Carol Rifka Brunt also appears to have a strong affinity for the outdoors and the woods, so... Right. Um, so that sure that that probably else. that is that is probably coming from her life, but other otherwise, I don't I don't really know what in this book is is fictional, like entirely fictional. What might be drawn from her experiences or experiences she's she's heard about? So yeah, I don't know. Right. Well, we can't postulate any further if we don't know what the book is. So let's dive right in. What is Tell the Wolves I'm Home about? Um, broadly speaking, it is about, uh, June Elbus, you know, the main, the main character. She is 14. Um, it is 1987 and she has an uncle who, um, has died of AIDS. Okay. So it's, it's a little, I guess it's a little heavier than, (laughs) than, than what we read last week. (laughs) Yes, I would, I would say so. Um, so, you know, this, this being 1987 in America, in New Jersey specifically, um, this is still pretty close to the start of the AIDS epidemic. Like I did a lot of research on AIDS and it's actually a way older virus than I thought it was like, um, Oh the, yeah. The virus is from like the thirties or forties or even older than that. Um, I think it's from, let me, where is it? Oh, uh, the most recent common ancestor of, um, one of the HIV, viruses dates back to circa 1910 oh yeah that's is that does that have to do with when they think it hopped from like a monkey or something like an animal yeah the the um and you know this is a big part of this book and a big part of you know what you do if you research aids is you learn about misconceptions about the virus and you will occasionally even today hear kind of ignorant comments from people who are like oh we had someone had sex with a monkey and now we have aids um, they actually think it's it's far more likely that people hunting these monkeys and other animals for food, um, they think that that is way more likely to have caused the jump from animals to humans. That makes sense to me. And the um, the original, you know, uh, predecessor of the HIV virus was called SIV, I believe, and um, that virus, like. Usually if it, it jumps to humans, it like it passes and it dies out before it does anything. So you have to be in a situation where you rapidly pass it from person to person in a continuous chain until it has time to mutate into something that is worse. Mm. So I think that's that's what ended up happening. How much but, did um, you know about it like coming into A, reading the book and B, doing some of this research? Not as much as I thought because – you know how when something is bad, but it does not directly affect you or somebody you'd care about. Yes. You maybe 
have not just paid it any particular attention. That's fair. So, you know, I, I knew that people, people don't die of HIV slash AIDS. They, they die of the diseases they get when their immune system shuts down. I know that in recent years, you know, there's still no cure, but um, treatments exist that make it possible to live almost a, you know, almost a normal, quote unquote, normal life, or, you know, at least as far as your lifespan goes. Um, what I was reading compared it to diabetes and in that it's kind of a manageable chronic condition. At its these best, days. anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, I de- you know I definitely didn't know how old it was. Um, there, I I think they've traced its, um, they've traced its spread through North America back to, um, somebody who immigrated here in like 1969. So, you commonly think of like the the 80s and maybe early 90s as the start of, you know, of widespread awareness about this virus, hmm. but it's you know considerably older than that. And yeah. in the book, you know, you do you do get a lot about how AIDS is still kind of a newish thing. Like you have President Reagan talking about it. Mm-hmm. You have the very first treatments kind of coming up on the news, ironically, you know, a few weeks after their uncle has died of it. There are, you know, various minor characters in the book who sort of approach June and, and her family members with um, sort of awe and concern because their uncle has died of this exotic thing and maybe they know somebody who has it and it's just it's it's new and it's scary and there's a lot of misinformation around and yeah it sounds it sounds bad <laughs> yeah it's pretty bad i mean like you I, i've been lucky enough to to not have it affect the life of someone i know personally um i know people who have known um folks with hiv or aids but not like well you know yeah um and then my knowledge of it's unfortunate because i think my knowledge of the disease at all is comes through a a variety of pop culture lenses be it film or you know a number of plays that deal with it in in a variety of settings angels in america being being the one that comes to mind first and um and and it being kind of coinciding with or unfortunately coinciding with the uh growth of the gay community in America and, and um equal rights vis-a-vis sexuality and um but it, yeah it's it I don't feel like I have a handle on it and I I don't you know god bless anybody who thinks they do <laughs> but yeah, it's a tricky thing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's that's part of the thing that comes up in this book is the um the homosexual thing is is her uncle Finn who dies is is a homosexual and I think it still hangs around to some extent today but it was even more prevalent back then as people thought that the disease itself came from homosexuality or had something to do with homosexuality. And actually um when people were first kind of realizing it was a thing um, the, the press coined the term grid, which meant gay related immune deficiency. Yeah. That was before they started calling it HIV or AIDS. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, back before people knew even what they knew in 1987, when this book is set, like they, they thought it was something that two otherwise healthy gay men could get from 
from having sex with each other. And really it just comes from um, those, those like, you know, males who are having sex are at risk, like at higher risk for that kind of thing because I, they don't use protection as much because the, you know, at least for a long time, the reason you use protection was so that you didn't get somebody pregnant and yeah. there is no danger of that in, um, in male sex, obviously. So let's, let's dive into the plot. Cause I think there, there'll be ways when this comes up, but I'm kind of interested in how and if, it dominates the book from a plot perspective. Does that make sense? And and kind of what is what is June's story in this book? Uh, okay, so so yeah, the, I mean, it, the in the sense that AIDS kicks off the events of the book, and it's totally intertwined with it at every step of the way. It is very you know it does dominate the book, but the main story thread is about June's relationship with Finn. Mm. So um. So June, I I think I mentioned she's 14 years old. She's very close to her uncle, who is also her godfather, and he he dies of this awful disease. And um, so at the at the funeral, this man shows up who she's never seen before, and she's curious about who he is. And her mother, who was Finn's sister, tells June and her sister June and June's sister Greta that his name is Toby. And he gave Finn AIDS, and so she thinks of him as his murderer, basically. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really, I thought that was really interesting. And and in my research, I actually did stumble upon a real case from not that long ago, actually, um, where a guy named Johnson Aziga um, had sex with a bunch of people after he knew that he had AIDS did not disclose it and after two of them died he was actually convicted of murder so oh my that's, god yeah that's that's pretty rough was that but in like, the united states um it was in canada i think he was canadian wow. and it looks like yeah he met people working for the ontario government so at a can canada yeah did, did the article you read say whether or not they could prove that he was doing it maliciously or just kind of out of willful negligence i didn't i didn't get that far into oh, it I just, I just, yeah i mean I, I think negligence probably is probably is the the case but you're I, at least you know, being convicted of, of of manslaughter i guess not that that would necessarily i don't know that would that's he that's, was convicted of first degree murder oh god yeah so as if he had stabbed them with a knife Oh, but that has to be on a case-to-case basis because otherwise that would have so many terrible precedents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't, I don't think it would apply. Obviously, if they dec- disclosed it or if they didn't know, but in this case, he did know and he chose to to have unprotected sex or mm. unsafe sex without telling anybody about it. So anyway, yeah, I thought that was a little extreme until I found out. <laughs> nope, that's a thing that actually happened. Well, I, I guess at um, that time period, what do you if Okay, so here's the thing. Did they know about what did they know about Finn before he died? Does that make sense about him being gay, etc.? Oh, they knew. Okay. So the, so the deal with um there there are two really important relationships in this books. Well, actually there are a total of four really important relationships, <laughs> but 
<laughs> so there's Finn and June. Okay. Um, there is June and her sister Greta. There is Finn and his sister Danny, who is also June and Greta's mother. And there is uh, June and Toby, which we'll get to in a little bit. Okay. But um, basically, Finn and Danny were really close for a really long time. And then Finn went off to Europe to, you know, to to do what you do when you're 17 and you want to go to Europe. You just, like, bum around. And um, he becomes, like, a recognized artist and he's, like, showing his work off and, you know, at shows and stuff. And he, and he in, intended to come back, but his stay keeps getting extended by all this you know all this fame that he has stumbled upon oh no humble and so he he comes back and he's with toby and toby has been in some trouble capital t trouble like he's been in prison oh wow (laughs) and um danny because she kind of sees toby as something that's come between her and her brother who she used to be really close with she really resents them and so um she basically tells Finn that if Finn wants to have a relationship with her children, Toby can't meet them. Oh wow. So she really she just wants to cut Toby out of out of their lives entirely and she doesn't want June and Greta to have any relationship with him and they just they just don't want him to know about him. Hmm. Um does that answer your question? I mean there's a there's a lot of stuff to unpack here and I feel like no, kind of coming I coming at it all scattershot. One of the one of the reasons I asked that question was going back to the to the idea of accusing someone of murder in that scenario is if you were already grappling with someone's death from that disease in that time period, I imagine if you didn't know that they were gay or at least had engaged in uh homosexual sex that that would make it it would make your responses even more extreme and and violent perhaps. right yeah and and you know homophobia doesn't come up in this book a lot interesting like it's it's a fact that i mean it's it's not you know finn is not in the closet at any point at least not with any of the people in his family is it um, more focused on the disease then it's more focused on the disease and you know because at this point the disease and homosexuality are kind of wrapped up together um there's kind of a causal relationship yeah that is implied but it's not about you know it's not about rejecting finn because he's gay or being uncomfortable because he's gay it's mostly because he comes back from this extended trip and he's got this you know this boyfriend with him and so danny resents that boyfriend for coming in between them and he's gonna she's gonna find a reason to dislike him whether he's been in prison or not basically yeah (laughs) or whether he's a man or not like that's just and it's it's it comes to light a little bit later that you know finn is writing her letters and trying to keep in touch and she is just so upset and hurt that she's not you know she's not responding back to him and um so where do i want to go from here um which relationship do you want to kind of set up next let me okay because it's so closely related is is um the relationship between June and her sister Greta. Okay. Because the book kind of sets up these two opposing sibling relationships and right. uses them to to comment on each other. And so um the name the name, you know, Tell the Wolves I'm Home comes from a painting that Pin that Finn is uh making of June and Greta, you know, in the weeks leading up to his death. 
he's painting a portrait of the two of them together and it's kind of a symbolic act on his part because he sees them growing apart a little bit as you know teenage girls are gonna do i think yeah and um and he doesn't he doesn't want what happened to him and his sister to happen to them and so you know his this is his small gesture that he wants them to like to be kept together by something. Oh, it doesn't sound like a small sense. gesture at all. <laughs> well, I mean, you like, know, it's, it's, thing. it's a symbolic gesture. It's yes. not like a, it's not super obvious. No, it is. It is. Here is this thing I'm going to bequeath to you. And because you love me and, and want to remember me, you will be tied together by it. Right. Yeah. And so, and so they're June and Greta are at this point in the relationship where, you know, June sort of keeps to herself and she's an introvert and she's not involved in a lot. Whereas Greta is sort of an overachiever and her parents put a lot of pressure on her. I mean, she's, she skipped second grade, I think. So um, she's a senior in high school. She's 16. She's in a musical and she's so like naturally talented that um, a production from New York city is like coming to this this high school play because they want to like recruit her for a part in a real show. So like, you know, she's got a lot of pressure on her. <laughs> this is Greta, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and how does, how's this? And so there's like, June? a there's like a two way resentment going on. Like June, they used to be really close and now she kind of sees Greta as, as being more grown up than her and more accomplished than her. And, Greta is sometimes kind of snotty to June, but you know, over the course of the story, we kind of start to see it from Greta's side to where June has this relationship with Finn and she's really jealous of it and protective of it. And she kind of won't let Greta in. And mm-hmm. so Greta kind of sees Finn as this, this thing that's keeping them apart. And then after Finn dies, um, it turns out that that Finn had told Toby to take care of June, and he told June to take care of Toby because you know Toby <laughs> didn't really have anybody else. And so <laughs> you start to get this this thing where June and Toby have this sort of secret friendship going on because, of course, her parents can't find out about it. Yeah, yeah. And um, what do they and, bond over? What? How does that go? It initially become it, it initially is just sharing memories of finn because they both lost him and they both you know they both were in love with him in their way like june takes forever to admit it but because it's you know it's uncomfortable for her but she was you know finn was like her first love and it's not appropriate because he's her uncle but like she really really cared a lot about him yeah and then over time it becomes clear that even though she had never met toby up to this you know up to this point you know, she's in their apartment all the time. There are, you know, like Finn has this jar of guitar picks that she plays with, even though Finn doesn't play the guitar. Like there's always a package of black and white cookies. Like she starts to realize that she sort of had this relationship with Toby without even knowing that he was he was there the whole time. Oh, oh, interesting. Like yeah. So so they kind of start to bond over over things and they become close as well. And um so yeah, even even though Greta doesn't know exactly what's going on for a, for a while, um, she still senses senses that this there's this barrier between them. And she was kind of 
you know, she feels bad about it. But she was kind of hoping that when Finn died, maybe things could go back to the way that they used to be between the two of them. Oh, and that that June had gotten wrapped up in Finn. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. All right. So yeah, it's about it's it's about like family relationships and sibling relationships, and it's the, the book it... does a really nice job of setting those two relationships up as you know mirrors of one another. I guess. And w- and what do these people learn? Like, what is like? Is there a specific kind of thematic hook other than kind of just growing to understand someone that you love better through these kind of circumstances or um there are a couple different things and it's mostly about it's mostly about june kind of learning and growing up because she does act very adult in this book which is some i mean going back to to kill a mockingbird again something we talked about was how the main character is like eight but there is a mixture of kid perspective and adult perspective, but it's handled deftly enough that you don't really notice it that much. It's a little more noticeable in this book because she's 14, but she's still having very like adult feelings. And... Is it a little Dawson's Creaky? Um, explain to me what you mean by that. I don't I'm know. Not... I just remember they were precocious, precocious <laughs> teens. Yeah, it was like one of those CW shows where they cast a 29-year-old as a 16-year-old. I didn't know there were any vampires in this book because I'm fairly certain <laughs> that every show on the CW is about vampires. <laughs> Sexy teen vampires. Sexy teen vampires. They're ageless, um, but they're stuck in school. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing, the reason why June feels driven to get to know Toby and to care about him even though... She quote unquote knows that he's a murderer. Is um is that Finn says, you know, Toby, Toby has nobody. So mm. take care of him. And there's a point in the book, you know, Greta has found this cache of like notes and stuff that June and Toby have been exchanging. And and Greta says to June, Well, you know, who do you think I have? <laughs> you know, she's she's kind of feeling isolated from her peers because she's younger than them. She's feeling isolated from her parents because she doesn't want to disappoint them. She doesn't really want to be in this New York show. She's mm. just, she's feeling like she's being made to grow up too fast. And, and so June kind of realizes that she, you know, she, she goes through most of the book kind of blaming Greta for the, for the way things are between them now. And she realizes that, Hey, it's actually two sided and I have my part in this too. And then the other big, you know, the big capital L lesson at the end is that Toby, Toby tells June that Finn was his first love. Mm. And, um, if you, it actually, I had to go back and read it again because it dawned on me, like, as I was just sitting and thinking about it later. But of course, if Toby and if Finn was Toby's first love, then guess who gave who AIDS? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so Toby's had to bear this, like, the, the weight of, of Danny's like disapproval of him and cutting him out of their family and of their life, you know, knowing the whole time that she has it backwards and yet loving Finn anyway. And so June kind of has an opportunity to see what, what, you know, non jealous love actually looks like. Yeah. I can't, I want to say there was a, um, cause it's not quite similar. I, I, I was struck by how you said non-jealous love because there was a there was a 
Marquez quote that I read when when he passed recently. Oh, that's that's actually really really sad. Yeah, it really is. Because um, that was our our second episode was love in the time of co- the cholera, and now I'm thinking that we have to do. Yeah, we have to. Hundred years of solitude at some point. Yeah, so we have to circle keep back that one on in that. your back pocket. Um, but there was a there was a quote from probably one of his books that was like, "There's no love stronger than unrequited love," or something like that. There was like a particular he was lending strength to that particular type of love and not that that is what this is but there's something about the one-sidedness of feelings like that that can Mm -hmm. occasionally make them so so much stronger yeah because it's it becomes you know wanting what you don't have it becomes like not i don't know you put someone up on a pedestal and you you imagine them to be some idealized version of themselves and that just makes it worse well and then and then you might it like it sounds like in this case you care for them so much that even after they're gone you don't want to change you don't want to affect how they appear to other people like you don't want to hurt them in another person's eyes yeah and that's it kind of comes up because you know as she gets to know Toby and gets to know the parts of her uncle that were actually Toby the whole time for a little while she she resents that because it's kind of she she thinks of it as like muddying her memories of her uncle because it actually turns out that you know these certain aspects of Finn's personality were actually some other person the whole time but then at the end she comes around to the flip side of that and you know she can see Finn shining out through Toby too you know in the in some of the ways that he he does things and and acts and thinks i i have been getting the the entire show that you kind of enjoyed this book more than a little bit i did like it yeah i mean again the the you spend the whole time in june's head and it does get a little repetitive like you do crisscross back and forth over you know her relationship with her sister and her relationship with finn like maybe a couple too many times yeah and because she is 14 years old you know there there's sometimes um a one notedness to her perspective i guess if that makes sense yeah like when you're a teenager you just don't have a lot of experience you don't have super complex emotions all the time yeah you only have yourself (laughs) yeah i mean i I really did like a lot of the characters and i really like how she set up these different relationships to kind of compare and contrast them and to teach the characters about things and um so yeah, the, I mean, the bulk of there were some things that bother me about it, but yeah, I did, I did enjoy it quite a bit. Does it wrap up in a way that you find satisfying? Because I feel like, given the sort of tinges of young adult fiction that kind of are yeah, yeah, throughout yeah. this book, not that it it sounds like it's obviously treating with respect to an issue that is probably a little more serious than than that label would give it credit for. Um, does it get a does it end a little saccharine? Is it a sad? Is it? Can you see the ending coming? Or everything does come together into a neat little package. Okay. There at the All end, right. like. All right. Um, I guess we don't have to talk about it specifically, but yeah, um, yeah, it does. It does all get wrapped up very tidily and um i imagine that yeah it is it is a little ya fictiony okay and the the friend of mine who recommended it recommended it among a gaggle of other like ya fictiony books yeah (laughs) 
Which I don't want to disparage. Which is fine. And we we talked about yeah. in I keep coming back to the Kill a Mockingbird episode because it was so recent, I guess. But like a book is just a book. Like if it's good, just read it and enjoy it and shut up. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be for you for you to like it. Well, and it's interesting too because I think I would I would have to read a lot more current young adult fiction to see if this kind of bears out with what my own memory of it is. But when I was in middle school or elementary school reading quote unquote young adult books, some of them were Star Wars books, but I, okay, (laughs) but they had like, they had characters in them that probably now I would look back on and recognize as pretty shallow, but the, their relationships were potent enough on the page that I was invested in all of them. And that, yeah, and that's something, what matters, something, right? yeah, something there resonated through like the campiness that I'm sure comes with most Star Wars books. Well, yeah, that aside, that's an extra layer of, of inanity that you have to fight. But, but kind of, I wasn't sure where this episode was going to go. And, we immediately, once we got out of the kind of backdrop of the book, which is what the disease kind of sounds like, it kind of seems like it was set in that era to create, not only explore that era, but to set up some specific conflicts, right? Yeah. Love in the uh, time of AIDS. Oh, yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> uh, but it's, you immediately ran right to character rather than like here was this crazy plot with all this stuff that happened yeah like i did i i did write down an outline of the plot that i you know i've i've looked back at a couple times and i've referenced but yeah going blow by blow through the plot i think would get maybe a little repetitive it's 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 more the book is more interesting like thematically and when you consider the characters and everything was there anything specific about its treatment of siblinghood that either rang true or or maybe even rang a little shallow given the characters themselves or i think it really got to the heart of adolescence i guess because i mean we've both got siblings yours are both older and mine are both younger but you have this you know you have your childhood where you all are roughly on the same level like you know, maybe somebody's older than somebody else, but you're all, you've all got a similar enough perspective and you can all like do kind of the same things with each other and still enjoy it on mm-hmm. one level or another. And then you hit adolescence and you start like growing up and all of a sudden this gap of two years or five years that used to maybe not seem so big now seems huge. Oh yeah. Cause even as you were saying that both of my sisters are, they are five and six years older than me. So by the time I have any sort of real human memories, they have already hit adolescence and that yeah. that gap exists. Whereas I'm sure when I was like four, I don't think they hated me. I think we hung out just fine. But <laughs> uh, once they got into middle and high school, like that gap felt like ages yeah yeah and so you you know you have childhood where you feel kind of together you have adolescence where you grow apart and part of that is is um you know the initial kind of difference in perspective and then part of that is 
that built up resentment that makes it hard to talk it out when you all get to the adolescent level, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, that, that person that was potentially an, an ally after bedtime, you know, of like, it's us and, and mom was mean today or whatever, or, you know, something happened at school, you were there. And then suddenly they are the person who is doing the things you want or they are mm-hmm. getting what you want. And now yeah. you it so quickly can flip to resentment in that scenario because you don't yeah. know any better. <laughs> yeah. And then it comes around again when you're all adults and you're all on the same level again and you figure out how to reconnect and then you start getting along again. And I you know that that's a phase that I just entered with my own siblings not all that long ago. Yeah. And um and yeah, so I I think the book really captures the the entire breadth of that transition really well. <laughs> Like, it, you know, it goes back through specific anecdotes, like things that, that June and Greta would do together. And then it would show how wide the, the gulf between them had become. And then by the end, they've reached out and reconnected and kind of found each other again. Well, it kind of struck me when you were talking about uh, Finn and June's mom, Danny. Is that right? Yeah. And her kind of jealousies over Finn's life, his Mm -hmm. more kind of bohemian artistic life, and how if you're not related to that person, yes, you might be jealous of them, but it's kind of easier to be like, eh, whatever, that jerk. You know, like, there's that that I mean, adding another wrinkle of resentment to that that I didn't really get into is that they were both artists growing up, but Finn pursued that lifestyle and Danny became an accountant. (laughs) Of course. Oh, man. So there's so, so there's oh, sort of no. that aspect of, like, you are living the life that I wanted to have that runs through that that resentment, too. It's a, it's about Toby, but it's also about that. Well, and then you don't you don't get to unplug from that as you might like, you know, if it's if it's not someone if it's someone you're not related to, it's easier to be like, oh, I, yeah, you did that thing that I wanted to do and I don't. I I resent that, but I don't have to then like deal with you as a person in my life because we're related. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was one other, if you didn't have any other big things, nope. there was one other thing that bugged me and I thought it might lead to a good discussion. Is, okay. Um, is it something 80s-y? Cause we haven't really it's, not something, about... it's not something 80s-y. Okay. It is... And I might have to edit this a little. It is something stylistic. So, okay, have you ever been watching a movie or reading a book or or anything? And in that movie or book, the characters reference some, you know, in-universe movie or book or song. And it, like, elicits a certain reaction out of them. Like, it, like it's supposed to be so groundbreaking or so moving or so awesome that all the characters in the book realize how like groundbreaking or moving or awesome it is. Yes. Like, do you, have I you, can't, you're familiar with that. I can't think that? of a specific like example, but I know exactly what you're talking about. It's that fine line where I don't, and I don't know that we talked about it that much when I discussed in the woods a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. but there were a lot of, there were random pop culture references in that book that, it always weirds me out when I see them. Like when someone references like a TV show in a book, I'm re- like, I don't know why. 
It just feels weird. Yeah. But so when I think that works, they kind of reference in broad terms what the thing is, but they don't. They don't reference it like specifically. Yeah, Winter's Bone did that really well, actually. Um, but what happened when in this it, book? When it doesn't work <laughs> is when they go into... Re- they get really specific about about what the work is and about what it's supposed to... <laughs> what it, you know, what it's supposed to evoke in people. Um, here, here's the, here's the particular section I'm talking about. And I don't want to, I don't want to put, I don't want to put anyone, I don't want to put Carol Rifka Brunt on blast for writing about this, but I just, this kind of took me out of the, out of the moment a little bit. It struck you funny. So, yeah, it struck me funny. So there's this, um, you know, that Finn does this painting of June and Greta and it's, it shows up in Newsweek, I think. And, you know, he had been such a famous artist and he had kind of stopped showing his work to the public 10 years ago. And so there's a lot of interest in this painting and it's describing one of his most famous prior. It's a news article explaining one of his most famous prior works. So it says, um, this old man, the last painting sold by Finn and possibly his most well-known is a self-portrait of the artist wearing a baggy woolen jacket over a bare torso. He's holding out an oversized human heart to a pool of crocodiles across the artist's chest is a jaggedly healed scar that reads empty. It's the sincerity of the gesture that moves the viewer. There's no irony, only the feeling that you are witnessing the very moment before you release the wet beating thing in his hand and the sense that you have truly received everything this artist has to give. And like a guy holding a heart and it says empty on his chest sounds like the most like undergrad art major pretentious painting that I have ever heard of. Like, do you hear what I'm saying? It's not, it has all the subtlety of a political card. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. That's hard. That gets into weird modern art stuff that I'm not comfortable like talk. I'm like, not. I'm not comfortable. Shame. Well, I'm. You know what I mean. <laughs> you are totally comfortable putting it to shame. <laughs> I understand because it feels super on the nose, right? It's like it's like he's empty. He's just, he's it's like heart. yeah. And maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's some weird, maybe it's pretentious to think that art should be like obtuse and hard to figure out or just really straightforward and not full of like obvious symbolism. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm saying. Well, I think there's, there, as someone who is not, uh, admittedly not as well versed in the visual arts as I am in, in, uh, even basic literature or music. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I I didn't want to use the word well versed on anything else. <laughs> um, that is an that is an area where I feel like everything should be because when I only I only ever encounter it in museums. So there's no like limerick of visual art for me. Is that a cartoon? Is that does that make you know what I mean? Yeah, like, like you don't you can't you can't read art? a there there's like when you're when you read a haiku you know it's a haiku. And yeah. you know what you're looking at. You can't do that with art. So it's entirely possible that there's a whole genre of art that is like this, that is very well respected and understood. And I just don't know anything about it. And that's like, that's where I'm coming from. But I think it's interesting that the book kind of makes pains to say that when you look at it, you can tell it's not ironic. Yeah. You know what I mean? it's, there's that it's longing rare... for an earnestness. Yeah. It's a rare instance in this book of. 
telling, not showing. That like I I don't think the book like I I think it was trying to establish like the import of Finn's work and why people would be so interested in it, but it overshoots just a little bit. <laughs> Which uh, is funny you, because there are other instances in the book where it does a better job. Oh really? Of of demonstrating it, like it says at one point that Finn liked to go into his own exhibits in disguise and just to see what everybody else was saying. And I think that that by itself, if somebody gets to the point where they're so recognizable that they have to do that to go into their own art exhibit, like I think you've established that he's well respected. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to. That's... You don't have to talk about this like emo crocodile painting that he did. <laughs> You just don't like that the word empty is on his chest. That's the big... <laughs> that's the part that really, yeah, that sealed the deal. Well, and I guess also for me that's hard too because I'm seeing something very cartoony in my head. But if it were an actual painting, maybe it wouldn't be and it would be super tragic and yeah. move me. Yeah. I don't know. I'll, I'll be interested if and when you get around to um, reading Infinite Jest for the show. That is a book. It'll it'll probably you'll probably. I don't read. mean to laugh. Maybe we yeah, make it to episode 100 or something. I think you'll probably read three books in the time that it takes you to read that book. Um, but that book is all about kind of self medication in a variety of ways. One of which we do that is with pop culture and and TV and film and stuff. And it mm-hmm. takes great pains to create this fictional body of work for one of its characters and uh it is purposefully comic while pointing out that everything that the dude made was extremely potent um and so there's kind of that it goes back and forth between giving something an earnest uh effectiveness but also kind of mocking some of the self-seriousness of that discipline yeah yeah Uh, which is what this kind of made me think of. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I think that's all I have to say. And you felt like it treated the epidemic in a personal and interesting way. Yeah, I felt, I mean, I really felt, I felt like I was there in that time before we had medicine for it or a lot mm-hmm. of knowledge about it. And there, like there's one time when where Greta is using Finn's chapstick or something and her mom just totally freaks out because of this idea that casual contact can spread it. Yeah. So yeah. that was one misconception that is still around today, but I you know, was definitely more prevalent back then. Hmm. So I I don't know. Like yeah, it, there were a lot of very very good character moments, very human moments that that I think pretty much anybody will be able to respond to, but yeah. Cool. Like maybe maybe if somebody reading this was a was a woman who also had a sister, there would be more stuff that they could get out of like the sister relationship or the brother sister relationship that I'm not that I didn't necessarily get from my perspective. So that's that's mainly why I bring up that you know, it's it's a book that concerns females in large part and so maybe there's I keep calling them females like I'm some That's alien. really weird. <laughs> women, young women, girls. <laughs> All right, well, I'm reading The Passage next week. Okay. For real this time? For really reals? Yeah, I read a whole bunch of it over the weekend, and uh, I'm really close to the end, and I'm excited to talk about it. It's a big book. Well, I, we'll have to figure this out. If people listen to this and either have read 
or interested in the passage. Uh, it's a kind of post-apocalyptic vampire thriller. Um, and my terrible voice actually does the book a great disservice. So, Coming to the CW this fall, <laughs> Passage, the TV series. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you want to give us any kind of feedback on this book that we read or the next books that we're going to read, uh, you can do that at twitter.com slash overdue pod if you use Twitter, facebook.com slash overdue pod if you use Facebook like Eric does, or you can email us at overdue pod at gmail.com. We also have a website at overduepodcast.com where we have Amazon links to the books that we are reading, that we have read, that we're going to read. If you click those and buy the books because you want to read along or read ahead, um, we get a little bit of a cut of that, which helps defray hosting costs and just generally makes us happy because um, we are doing this for the sky high stacks of book money, <laughs> right? Sorry, I was too busy uh, knitting my money blanket. Sorry, I was too busy counting my bills. <laughs> um, we also have some other stuff up there, like an RSS feed and a link to our iTunes store page that you can click on. Uh, you can subscribe to our show that way, get every new episode, which we upload usually on technically Monday or sometimes Tuesday. Um, yeah. And then uh, in iTunes, you can also rate and review us, which helps us out in the rankings and helps get our show a little more visibility. So we really appreciate it when people do that. And uh, I think that's that's everything. Next week, Craig's going to read The Passage. And until then, you should try to be happy. Yeah.